With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the Sideline, a podcast for coaches and aspiring coaches, where we share the best practices of coaching, interview with coaches, and experts in the field of coach education. Here's your host, Vin Blaine. Welcome to another episode of On the Sideline. I'm your host, Vin Blaine. Today, I'll be having a chat with Benjamin Benavente on developing a culture and philosophy in academies. Benjamin has done extensive research on academies in the UK, Chile, Iceland, and other countries. Hi, Benjamin. Thanks for joining me on the sideline. Oh, thank you very much, Vic. We're trying to work on a program for academies within the Caribbean. You have an interest in presenting a document that will speak to development of academies based on your experience that you have been and your research so far. Yeah, I'm looking forward to develop because I really think football in, in the Caribbean has a lot of potential. Right. And there's a lot of places in the world that football is kind of exploiting that potential, like uh, the North America with Mexico and the US. Yes. Then you also have parts of Africa and also Asia. But I think the Caribbean has a potential that some people has realized, but they haven't exploited that yet. That's why I'm interested. And, uh, and I'm glad you chose on the sideline to come and explain some of that because in truth, it's, it's, uh, this podcast will reach out to different people, and I think it's important for them to understand how an academy runs and how it should be developed. So with that said, I would like for you to look at the structure and performance pathway an academy. All right, so I think that they, every academy has a certain structure. If we look at what we've got here in England, uh, we've got something that is the Elite Player Performance Plan, who came on around 2009, 2010, to kind of completely restructure football here, youth, elite youth football in England. Because obviously with the bad results they had about that time, uh, they realised they were kind of behind of the academies or, or the youth system of other parts of Europe, like, for example, France with a Clairefontaine or Germany, you know, winning great things um, and, and Spain as well. You know, that's the time that Spain won the Europeans and won the, the World Cup. So they came up, the Premier League came up with this elite player performance plan and it delivers kind of a structure that is really systematic. It has a rationale in behind and it looks to, well, you got different categories in England. So the elite player performance has the category one, which you have the big, the big clubs like Liverpool, you got the Chelsea's and you got the Man United. Then you got uh, the other level sites, so category two that goes below category three. And then you got category four, which is not the lowest level, but it's just those clubs that realize, you know, academies is a lot of money and an effort to, to invest on. And I say we're going to use just the last bit of the of the academy that goes from under 17 to under 23. So we're going to speak about it in a bit. So the performance pathway kind of delivered by the P is, is the following. Category one starts with pre-academy that goes from under five. So kids now four or five years of age, which is extremely young all the way to under eight, 
uh, and this is kind of part of the academy, the academy, but not kind of legal because you can't have contracts with these players. So they come in, you get the the, the best players of the city of that age, uh, which is actually very difficult to spot on because they're really, really young. And then it jumps into what is the foundation phase. So you got in, in academy football, you got three main phases. Foundation phase that goes from under nines to under 11. Then you got the youth development phase, which goes from under 13s to under 16s. And then you got the last bit of the academy, which is the professional phase for under 17s to under 23s. Uh, like I told you, category four is those that said, all right, we want, we're looking for short, short-term progress. We're looking to kind of like uh, Huddersfield, they're starting to implement this. They said, all right, we're going to swipe everything that's below professional development phase. So everything that's from under 18s to under 16s, we're not going to have that. And we're going to start working from under 17s. And it's been quite, you know, academies tend to be um, a really broad part of the club. And it's very important because it helps in the sustainability, the financial and footballist, uh, football sustainability of a club. So if a club gets two, three great players into the first team, they, they're saving a lot of money on transfers because nowadays here in the Premier League, it transfers for what, 15 all the way to 80 million pounds. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's a lot of money. So if you can bring a player, let's say like Hurricane into Tottenham, you, well, nowadays Hurricane is probably, I don't know, 80,000 in value. And obviously they, they didn't spend that money because he came all the way through the academy. Uh, so that's why coming from as young as possible in, in the academy is better. So most clubs tend to start on the under eights or under nines. But the category four said, all right, we're going to start this short term process. We're going to, that is a positive because you can see players coming in from under 17s and in two years time, they jump into kind of the, the first team. Mm-hmm. Um, they save considerable amount of effort and investment in the other parts of, of the academy. Uh, but the negative side of this, I say, is that category four teams or those category three that starts probably later on, uh, they have a problem which is they have they feed themselves with leftovers from the big clubs. That means that they have to wait until a good player drops from an academy for any reason. It was whether he didn't, the club didn't feel they have enough talent, let's say Man United. Mm-hmm. They have a player and it goes all the way to under-17s and then they dropped. So that's where Blackpool, for example, or a category four of that kind of a region, they would say, oh, let's get that player at the under-17s. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a very kind of, so there's different structures for every academy. Uh, but there's obviously, the, the younger you start, the better it becomes. Now that we have gotten the structure and you spoke to big clubs, let me give you a background on academies in the smaller countries. Academies in the smaller countries are used, the word academy is used freely. Most academies are independent of clubs. So I want you to consider that in some of your, your talks. I want to hear what happens at the big academies, definitely. But most academies in the Caribbean and maybe smaller countries that... People just say, okay, we have an academy. They normally go to maybe 14, 15. So they're not attached to a club, but they're independent academies. That happens a lot in, in South America. So I did my, um, I did a, a kind of um, advisement for them in, mm-hmm. in, in a club in second division of Chile. Mm-hmm. I was advising, I was kind of this external advisor 
for the for a restructure of an academy there, a, a professional cat, academy category one. So it was actually quite big. Mm-hmm. And obviously, because um, I've grown up as a coach and as a football person here in the UK, I've got used to this kind of logical structure, you know, right. it's pyramid. So right. you start from the foundation, which you got loads of kids and it's going up and there's kind of a, there's a progress, a logical progress for, for players, for the best players to to go through. Mm-hmm. So when I get there into Chile, I ask, how's the structure? The president of the club, he said, all right, so I don't know what the structure is. And I go like, how is that possible? It's, it's your academy. <laughs> yeah. um, and he said, you know, it's because we externalized the academy. We didn't want to invest in the academy ages ago. So we gave it to a group of people that wanted to invest and do whatever they wanted with it. So in some countries, you realize that although everything that I'm saying, you know, that in the elite player performance plan, there's a, there's a foundation phase, youth development phase, a professional phase. Although it becomes obvious, some, some countries or some clubs that are even playing professionally or, or a high standard in their own continent, they don't have that. And that is that is the base of everything, you know. Um, so... If a player, like for example in Chile, a player stops its youth career at the age of 18. Mm-hmm. I want to speak with some of the some of my teachers here in England that they've been all around youth football, Bournemouth, Southampton, Watford. Uh, the guy said, but a player at the age of 18 is not ready. Some of them are not ready. you got some stars that, yeah, at the age of 17, they're ready and they play. Like Ansu Fati that made his debut with Barcelona a few months ago at the age of 16. But that's weird. That's rare. That's not all the time. So, yeah, given, I say clubs should take ownership mm-hmm. of their academy and understand the importance it has in the long term and the sustainability of the club as well. The fact that we have independent academies, I would make a suggestion to these academies that they attach themselves to a club. It doesn't have to assume the club's name. But if, you're, if you have an academy, what's the purpose of having an academy if you have no end product? You understand what I'm saying, Benjamin? Yeah. Because I think they could say, okay, go to a club, make arrangement with them, say, okay, we have an academy, we'll, we'll develop these players, and you can have these players for your, uh, for your program after we develop, you know, because some clubs don't have a youth academy that, that has four, five, six, seven, eight-year-olds. Most clubs start off maybe under 13. But the structure and the performance pathway should apply to these independent academies, don't you think? Absolutely, absolutely. I think the problem with independent academies is you don't take ownership of the development of the player. So as a club, you need to understand, like, let's give you an example. Here in England and in Europe in general, you've got the wealthy clubs. Right. You've got the clubs that can spend hundreds of millions in a transfer window and they can bring players from all around the world. But that's a few of them. That Those are the Chelsea's, those are the Man City's, those are the PSG. How do the others compete against that if they do not have the money? Like Eibar in Barcelona like Southampton here, probably now that they've got these Chinese investors, they've got a bit more money, but still. So what they do is they say, what's the best way of making money? Well, creating those players that are going to end up playing for those big clubs and you're going to end up selling them for a for a massive amount of money. So if you go like Southampton, they go uh, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, they make a lot of money out of it. Uh, they they go uh, Walcott a lot of money out of it. They get Gareth Bale they make a lot of money, and that sustain the club itself. Right. Uh, and that's how you can compete with the bigger clubs. Right. And that, that is a fact right there. But because why I, why I speak about this, and I wanted you to give and uh, you started already, 
I wanted you to give an idea as how these other, the bigger academies operate. Are the academies there affiliated to the FA? Yeah, every club is affiliated to the FA, every club in England. And, and along with their academy? Yeah, yeah, the academy is part of the club, so there's no external academies here. The, the only private academies you get are those that are kind of like uh, they, they want to just make a profit out of it, but they don't create professional players. Every club here has their own academy and it's part of, is a rule. If you want to be a professional club, you have to have your own academy. And these academies, because I know there are two kinds of academies. From your research, you can, you can um, correct me. But you have the paid academies that are independent academies. When these bigger clubs have players, these players are scouted and invited to be part of the academy? Yeah, so this is, that's, a, that's a different thing. That's scouting. Mm-hmm. So the, the club is going to have their own scouting network looking for the best players out there. Yeah, that's what I'm uh, saying. They, I'm not talking about scouting in, in, in actuality. I'm talking about, let me, let me put it another way then. The players that are within an academy, say, for instance, Liverpool Academy, whatever it is, yeah. those players are selected players. Parents cannot just bring their child to the academy. Yeah. That's a question. Uh, can, play, can people just randomly bring a player to the, an academy or the academy players are players that they have scouted and bring in? Yeah, they have to be scouted. So there's no, mm-hmm. so there's a few of them, there's a few of them, especially in London, mm-hmm. in which you can, you can apply for a, for a scouting. So you can say, all right, I've got a player in my team in grassroots football. He's really good. I've got some footage. I'm going to send it to them, but they receive thousands of them. So they're probably going to have a look in there. By. But there, there is no way you can just say, oh, I'm going to contact someone. Oh, yeah, I've got this player. Can you go to academy? No, it has to go through the scouting process. Okay. And another question. Okay, so within an academy, you, you have the three uh, age groups that you, that you mentioned. Does each age group have their own set of coaches physios, trainer in the academy, in the bigger... Yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's a great question. So mm-hmm. each foundation phase have their own head of foundation. Mm-hmm. So that's, the, uh, let's say, sorry, each phase has its own head of the phase. So youth foundation is going to have its uh, coaches for the under eight, another coach for the under nine, all the way to the under 11. And they're going to have a head of coaching there that is in charge of educating the coaches is in charge of saying, all right, the program that we've got on paper, that we've got on the theory, is is taking place in the coaching habits day to day. Then they you jump into the next phase, you got the same thing. And uh, there's, a, there's a ratio. So normally it starts off 10 players, you got one coach. So every yeah. 10 players, you got one coach. When okay. you get into the youth development phase and the older phases of the club, mm. you start having eight players, one coach. Mm. See, and then you get starting having specialized coach. So let's say each coach in each phase of the development of the performance pathway is specialized. So it's not like this one coach and he's going to follow through with that age group until they graduate from the academy. They're not going to do that. So if you're a coach of the foundation phase, you're going to stay in the foundation phase because that's your specialty. Okay, yes, I agree. So, so that's good because then the, the players, they start having different coaches, different um, stimuli from uh, different coaching styles. And you've got coaches that are specialists in that, in that age group. Right. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Now, do they transition into, for instance, the, be- the, the lower level, do they transition into the youth development phase automatically and then to the um, professional development phase? 
if they're good enough yet. So they do a, a review normally in England. They do a six-week review mm-hmm. uh, after the age of 12. Mm-hmm. Before the age of 12 is a 12-week review in which they, they see everything. They see, all right, this is the code. Uh, this is the program that we've delivered. This is each player. The, the review goes for each player mm-hmm. in the four-corner model. So the four-corner model sees technical, tactical, psychological, social, and physical. Mm-hmm. All right. So they see in those four corners. All right. In the technical part, he is, uh, you know, he's developing first touch, but he's a bit weak on uh, uh, passing the ball. And they start seeing that. And by the end of the season, they do a complete review in which they see the whole year advance of the player. And they come to within the coaches and the and the staff of the academy. They come to a conclusion and they say, all right, is this player good enough to transit into the next age group? Mm hmm. And obviously, as I'm, to- I'm telling you, that it's like a pyramid. It starts with a lot of kids, and then you get like this filter in which only the best ones are going to make it. Right. The ratio of players that actually make it uh, to the first team or first team football, professional football, is about a 10%, 15% of the whole academy, which is really <laughs> so. Not everyone makes it. Yes, okay. yes. So at the foundation phase, I don't know if you well if you're privy to it, but at the foundation phase, what are what are what are what do they concentrate on at the foundation phase? What well, so the foundation phase is mm-hmm. is all about enjoyment, uh, kind of uh, building confidence, motivation, and the basic uh, you know football skills related to that age, mm-hmm. right? So in here we don't we don't see teams wanting to win. Mm-hmm. There's uh, in Europe we, you rarely in in Spain you see it in other parts. But in England, you don't see a uh, a league table for these people. So they play friendly games mm-hmm. in which you, your winning doesn't matter because here it's all about the kids enjoying, the kids developing the certain, you know, the the basic skills and techniques related to football, like receiving the ball, like passing, like shooting, mm-hmm. like moving, things like that. Mm-hmm. But they they give a lot of emphasis on creating this kind of like friendly environment, yes. which is all about building the player not 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 only the player but the individual of okay. bringing him this is the age in which you can mold players you can kind of transform them in the way you want them because they're young enough so it's so they're really receptive to to all the information mm-hmm. so in this age it's all about you know getting them to love the game because if they don't love it at the age of 10 they're not going to love it when it becomes hard right. and it becomes a living right so you want them to be in love with the game that they got the Normally, like um, in Spain, what they do is you do the sessions really fun, uh, take the best out of the technical abilities, whatever, and then make it so fun that the love is uh, for the game is huge. And they end up, they can't wait for the next session. Okay. So what this means is they're going to go and play outside in the fields or in the streets with their friends. And that moment is where they can develop as well. So that's what it's all about. And then, and then at the the tactical thing kicks in at the development phase, the youth development phase. Exactly. So this is when they start to integrate tactical awareness mm-hmm. to position. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not a lot of you know strategy and you know this is how we play and that's that's how we're going to play next week. Mm-hmm. It's about how can you implement the technical skills that you've learned from the previous stage. Mm-hmm. How can you implement them specific? to a position. So normally academies have players at the youth development phase to play in three or four different positions. So it could be centre-back, it could be centre-mid, it could be CDM. 
and that brings that brings a, a player because at that age, after the age of fifteen, you can say, all right, this player specialised in a certain position, and after the age of fifteen, they start playing in one or two maximum positions. Okay, that's when they get to like, that's when they get to the, the professional development phase. And the professional development phase is just not. They get into very detail of of the position, let's say you're a, you're a left back. So when to do overlapping, when to, you know, cross to the second post, very, very detailed, but at the same time, the collective side. All right, so this is how we counter-attack. This is how we press. So there's an awareness of the very detail of the of your individual position, mm-hmm. but also in the collective side of of, of the of the whole club, yeah. the whole team. Exactly. So so my question now is at that level, at the professional development phase, and they're doing, how do you attack? How do you defend? This is based on what the, the senior team does. Yeah. Uh, Patterns the not, senior team. So not, not always. So what the best academies do, and that we can go to the culture, which is probably one of the most, what I've realized from my research, from my experience being in academies, is that the best clubs are those that have a marked and evident football philosophy. So a culture. So that's the Ajax. That's the Barcelona, that's the Man United, that's the Chelsea. They know exactly how to play, what they represent, how to interpret football. Mm-hmm. And um, so there is a coherent pathway to get into, into the, the playing philosophy of the first team. So Barcelona, the first team is going to play exactly in the same manner the under-12s play. So that's that's uh, you can see when young players jump into the first team of Barcelona, it's like they've always played for the first team of Barcelona because they they entered with the age of nine and they've been experienced that culture, that way of playing football all their lives, and they jump in the first team and it's like nothing new. I've always played this. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Just a different level now. You know? Yeah, completely. Yeah. All right. So one more question before I go back to the junior side. When they get to the professional development phase, the under 17, 18, 19, and 20s, are they expected, not, not they're going to, but they're, that's the age when they're expected to almost trying to break in the first team? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So normally there's, there's something that it's, even if you've got great players, mm-hmm. the first team coach, which uh, obviously the, the manager of the first team is always in connection with the academy. So let's say like... Um, Arsene Wenger at Arsenal, he used to go and see every, uh, when he had the time, every session of the academy, every player uh, going to watch the games. And he knew exactly who was ready to give that next step. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. There's something that you don't want to rush their development. So even though you've got a great, great, great 17-year-old boy, mm-hmm. it could be harmful to make him jump into the first team straight away. Right. Okay. Probably he's not psychologically ready because what you do is you tell them, all right, you play now for the first team, but then because you're just doing it for a bit, mm-hmm. then he jumps back into the football and he's still got three or four years left mm-hmm. in the academy. And the kid feels, or the youngster feels, that he's kind of like regressed. He went back in his career. So you don't want that to happen. So you want him to to be when when to bring it into the team when he's absolutely ready. But yeah, they expect kind of that age to show the the ability to to make it to the professional st- uh, stage. And if they're ready to play professionally, but they're not ready to play in the first team, they're going to send them alone. So that's a very useful way of doing it. Right. All right, let's go back to the foundation field because I think a lot of academies really concentrate on that between the foundation phase and the youth development phase. Uh, we can't, they can't definitely 
compared to the bigger crowds, but they do well with what they have. But I would like to give them a guideline. We're talking about assessment now. At the foundation phase, how heavy are they into assessment of these youngsters? Well, like I told you, the assessments, um, it's a every two weeks, uh, sorry, every 12 weeks normally. 12 weeks, okay. Yeah. yeah, they do this assessment in which they say how the player's doing technically, how the player's doing tactically. But it's it's not like you're assessing the player of like how good he is. You're just seeing how his development has gone through. And by the end of the year, that's when you start saying, all right, he's ready for the next stage or he's not quite ready. Uh, we can send them, you know, to, to play grassroots football, grassroots football again. Uh, yeah, but I don't think the assessment is to say, like, are you good enough or not? It's to say, all right, so what can we do as a club, as a coach, Mm-hmm. to make him better in a certain act. Mm-hmm. Now, is the assessment now, when you get to the, 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 the youth development phase, which is under, 14, under 13 up to 15, I imagine that the assessment there is a little more critical, is it so? Yeah, absolutely. It becomes more critical. It, it, it becomes every six weeks. So they're assessing the performance. And because at this age, you can tell who's better, who's been left behind and who's getting, going ahead. Uh, then the assessment is probably more thorough. But it's important to understand that at this stage, there are children that hit puberty before others. So those are called the early developers. Those that are 13 but look 16. Whether there are other children that probably develop later and they still look, what, 10, 11. So what they do here is they try to, to, to use this holistic uh, assessment of the players, so not just in the physical, because you see a lot... Um, and that happens in South America as well. And um, in the grassroots football here in England, they think the better players are those that can score more goals, that can hit the, the, the ball further, that they can hit it harder, they can I don't know, shoot from outside the box. But that is related to kind of the biological age more than the actual age That's of the right. person. Right. Because by the end of the day, that kid that is 13 and represents 16, he's playing with other kids that probably represent 10. So he's playing with a kind of a four or five years of difference. So they are very critical on, on, you know, the technical part of how much they can develop, not just the physical part of it. So they they look at the psychological. So how is he communicating with other players? How are they? Are they resilient enough? They look a lot of the resiliency of uh, resilience of players. So if if you're mentally strong enough, that is going to, is that's going to determine most of it in your professional career. If a, if a child is not resilient, that he probably is not going to work it through in his in his future when he becomes professional. So it's just more. It's more than just your technique and technical tactical ability. It's more a long term look at potential. So they're looking for potential Absolutely. talent. Then yeah, yeah, that's the potential talent. So probably the, the, the there is a child that is that is weaker, that is not as fast. That, that probably represents less of age, mm-hmm. but you can tell his technique is brilliant, that he can pass the ball with the outside of the food. So they look at these things uh, in, in a holistic manner. They're just not, not only going to look at this, they're going to look at the personality on the ball as well, how much he wants the ball, uh, you know, how hard worker he is and things like that. Yes, those are good, those are good, those are good qualities right there, you know. Uh, uh, okay, now I must ask this question because of late... These two terms have been going around, maybe sometime, maybe before, but it's now coming to the fore a, a lot more. And we're talking about relative age effect and uh, the biobanding. What role does relative age effect play in these big academies? 
So our relative age effect, that is what we've been speaking about. So that the age is relative to the development of the player in the kind of like uh, physical development. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a biological clock that they call it yeah. in which obviously the children develop at different stages mm -hmm. physically, mentally um, and technically as well. So that it plays a lot. There's something here that they call uh, is very unique to English football that I haven't seen in other places. That is called the uh, you got the center of excellences. Mm -hmm. So it's basically it's not an academy, but it, it works kind of like an academy that you bring in potential players that could bring that could jump into the academy, and they have these shadow squads. So shadow shadow squads is normally players that were born late. Yes. On the year. Mm -hmm. So let's say here in England is from September all the way to August. So one player could be born in September and the other one could be born in August. They almost have a year of difference. Mm -hmm. So obviously they develop kind of a year of, of difference. So what they do is that kid that is in August that probably doesn't develop as as best as he can with other teams, that are, uh, the other players that are older than him, they are going to put him into the shadow squad. So and see how he develops, because then when he hits puberty and he starts to catch up with the other players that are kind of developed physically earlier than him, then he starts to catch up. And then if he's better talented, then he's going to go through that person. So do, uh, what I'm asking really, though, is I hear, I uh, understand that, but do they play a heavy, does the age, the ones who are born in the first quarter of the year, right, which is preferred by a lot of academies? You find that there's a prevalence of that approach in, in the academies, the, 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 um, the big academies, that they bring in players who are born in the first quarter of the year. Yeah. yeah, and there is a study as well that shows that most of the players that make it professionally are those born in the first quarter. Mm -hmm, right. So my, my, my question is, for the for because there is a lot of competition nowadays within the academies. Uh, here in London, if you, let's say... Uh, you are a lower club, let's say like Wimbledon, and you've got a player that probably is really good, really good. Then Chelsea is going to spot him and he's going to buy it from you for for just a few pennies. Mm -hmm. So not mm -hmm. a lot of money. And then you lose. That's nothing you can do because obviously the player wants to go and play in the better team, mm -hmm. in a better mm -hmm. club. Yes. Um, so my, my thing is, why don't those clubs that can't afford to pay or, or, or to or to kind of compete against the older uh, the bigger clubs why not they go and get those players born later on on the year mm -hmm. because they are kind of not spotted by the other clubs because of what I'm telling you or we're discussing about so those because I think there's a lot of players that there is no there's no reason why those born in the first quarter have more chances to to become professional players mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so there's a lot of players that are born later in the year that are losing those chances so that I think the, 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 the lower clubs can look at that as a possibility. Well, if, if they looked at Harry Kane, they would have done that because yeah. Harry Kane is born in July. Yeah. So he's one of the ones that are an exception to the rule. Yeah, they obviously are exceptions, but the, 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 the research how that shows that those born in the first quarter really have a better chance to make it to professional game. Yeah, and uh, when you look at assessment and, you know, when people are, are scouting players, 
Because if I remember correctly, Arsh, uh, Harry Kane went on loan to Arsenal from his original club. And they didn't keep him. Yeah. No. So um, right now, he, and he, he's now at Tottenham and doing very well and, and commanding. And a and, and national uh, play for the U, U, UK now, England right now. Yeah. So uh, it's, well, it's, it's a difference, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Every, every club has their own kind of unique scouting um, method. Mm-hmm. So we got the the um, there's different formulas in which and characteristic you normally have uh, those club looking uh, which you can agree or not but there's a lot of clubs like Barcelona looking for a specific position right and a player that meets those characteristics right so let's say Barcelona they're looking for a CDM so a central defensive midfielder to be the one that is comfortable in the in possession okay. one like Busquets or one like I don't know Pirlo. So they look for one that has those characteristics. And if the player doesn't have that characteristic, then he won't make it to the academy. Okay. All, right? All right. Then you go, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. clubs mm -hmm. that they look for players, just, just talent. So they don't really care whether that CDM is a defensive player or is one that can play from the back, or they don't really care whether the goalkeeper can play from the back or use both feet. They will care only if they're good enough to make it. And the best clubs find the balance, in my opinion, because uh, you can have a left back that is probably quicker, but then you can have a left back like Marcelo, Marcelo Brazilian. Now, he's not as quick, mm -hmm. but he has that technical ability that he, he can go and play forward and pass the ball around and make a difference. And that's important, huh? Yeah. All right. Now, what role? I'm going back down again. I, I, we, go, we, we go to different as the conversation takes us, which is, is, is not a problem. But I'm looking now at the, at the performance level again. The foundation. Let's foundation. stay there. Yeah. Well, how important is a player performance plan? And explain what that means to my audience. So the, the player performance plan is, is basically um, what you're going to do in each specific phase. What are the vision? What are the values? Uh, what are you looking to achieve? So every club has a different uh, kind of strategy or a performance uh, plan. And how important it is, it kind of that has the same importance in every phase. Mm -hmm. So it's not in one phase is more important than the other. But obviously it has a great importance on, on the, the foundation phase. Why? Because you need to know the content that you're delivering, mm -hmm. that your coaches are delivering. You need to know what are the aims specific to that age. You need, you need to know... Uh, what coaches are capable when you're recruiting coaches, what coaches have the ability or are age specific to those uh, to that part of, of, of the career of a, of a youth player. And it's normally in this uh, foundation phase, it's not the, the environment is normally friendly, it's more entertaining, it's more looking for fun, like we said, uh, developing confidence, motivation for the game. And normally, in this, the coaching program becomes much more democratic in the sense of here you don't like kind of the the methodology of coaching here. You see a lot of question and answers. You see a lot of guided discovery. So when I went to ask, um, sorry, when I went to West Ham to do a session, I met one of the coaches uh, working with the under, if I'm not wrong, the under sevens it was. Uh, and he's coaching. So I've, I've been doing coaching for a while. But I really admire the way he, he coached the players because it wasn't about how much he knew about football. He, it was about how he can reach the players. Okay. You know, so he was much friendly. He was like, oh, Adam, how are you doing? 
And these things are, are very important for each specific uh, group. At the foundation phase, it's more democratic. You use a lot of question and answer. So what do you think about the session? What do you think? What could you have done better? There's a lot of guided discoveries. So um, you're in the sideline. What can you do in this situation? What do you think? Uh, it's kind of you there helping him. You're not giving him the, the information straight away. You're trying to guide him towards the information. That changes the older the player gets in the, in the youth development phase. It becomes a mix. So you start seeing a, a bit more of a command, you know, uh, move there. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, why are you moving there? Right. You see that? So there's a transition. And then when you go all the way to the uh, youth professional phase, sorry, it's it's more recreating the professional game. That The professional game, you're not going to ask him why you're moving there. It's, all right, you move there and you do so. Because mm -hmm. you, you get in the player, now older, ready for the demands of, the, of, of first division or, you know, first in football. And that's why I'm an advocate. I'm a real advocate of age-specific coaches. Because what Absolutely. You're, yeah, and what you're describing is, is exactly it. I, myself, would, would shy away from coaching seven-year-olds. I don't have that, 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 that ability to, to get down to their level. I'll try, I'll try, but it's trying. It's not, it doesn't come natural. Yeah. And if it doesn't come naturally, it will, the kids will recognize it at some point. Yeah, and it's also a lot of education. So the coaching education here in England, you have the the, the youth uh, education that goes uh, in hand with the level two, your A for B, mm -hmm. and you can you can determine which age you're going to become specific at. So there's age specific to foundation phase, youth development phase, or professional phase. Because I think yeah, like you're saying, there's people that don't have the ability uh, to coach younger players, don't have the patience, don't have the connection because. By the end of the day, coaching is that, is how you reach the players. It's not about how much you know, it's about how you get to the players to understand the knowledge you're delivering. Right. So that's something that um, uh, Simeone, mm -hmm. Cholo Simeone says. Yes. He says that the difference between him and a third division uh, coach is not how much they know about football, but is how he gets to the player, how he's able to seduce the player to get into his philosophy. Very, very uh, important. That's something that goes, that, that applies to every age, whether it's youth football or professional football. Right, right. I, I agree. I mean, that is something that I know. The discussion can go on, but it's, but it's definitely what the approach should be, you know, about having it specific and know what you're, how you can get to the players. Grassroots is one way that I know people have to be aware of how they deal with different personalities. But there's another problem I, I've seen a lot from from coaches that are probably less educated or mm -hmm. uh, that there's a lot not, of ego. not trained. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of ego. Yes. So the the, the coaching position brings you a lot of authority. Mm -hmm. So you can you can choose what to do and and you can show the world as a coach how good you are as a coach. But you must remember, and that's my my advice to every youth coach here, that coaching is about the player. Is about developing the players, not about you as a coach. You can say, "All right, I want to become a better coach. I want to, I want to get higher in this, in whatever I'm doing in coaching." Mm -hmm. But it's all about the players. So the, the the here in England and in Europe in general, it's a player-centered approach. So the player is at the center of everything. The coach is just there to help that development, and you as a coach have a massive impact in the development of a player. But you need to understand that is about how can I do it to make this individual become a better person, 
but also how can I do it to deliver a better session to help this player to become a better football player? Couldn't have been better said. Now, from your research, Benjamin, I'm going to ask a question. Why is it necessary to have a, a clear culture and football philosophy to develop an elite environment? I think it's, it's crucial that the culture, the DNA of a club is going to determine uh, whether the whole staff, everyone being part, whether you're a coach, whether you're the, 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 the backroom staff, whether you're an analyst, whether you're a player, to go in the same direction. So without a clear culture, people don't really know what's going on. They don't really know where they are, where the north is. So in my experience, the best clubs, as I've said it, they they have the the, the clearest football philosophy, and it's not just in paper, but it's delegated from the directors to the coaches, from the coaches to other staff and to the players. So everyone adheres to it. Everyone grabs it as it's their own philosophy. Um, an example again of it, it could be Man United. Man United, from the day you start playing for Man United, you get the the whole experience, the whole culture mm-hmm. uh, from, from the values, from you know how you work, of how you are as a person, which is very important. And that's the core values that kind of sustain everything. And the way you play as well. So Man United loves the attack. They attack and they attack and they attack. They love it. That's the way of football. They're playing up through the wings. And that's how they play it through the whole the whole youth careers, and they jump into the first team. And same as I said before with Barcelona, it's like they've never. Oh, it's, sorry, it's like they've always played for the first team. So that culture is very important. It's the DNA of the club, and it's divided up here. The England FA divided it in three main uh, core things. So the first one is who we are. So what are is our core values? Is it teamwork? Is it respect? Hard work? Is it what? You know, that is very important. It's something people are starting to look at, you know, being probably the biggest foundation. There are clubs that say, eh, that's not important. Like everyone has their own kind of like philosophy of how they are as a person. But it's really important because it, it brings everyone together. The next one is how we play. So what is our playing philosophy? Do we do we like attacking? Do we like defending? Do we like having possession? Do we like being more aggressive uh, and having a, a gagging press that is known for like Jurgen Klopp and some other German managers? Or, or, or we go in the counter-attack or, or we were, were low block? That's very important to know because there are academies out there that I've seen that the culture or the playing philosophy is not there. So each coach decide their own formation, mm-hmm. each coach decide their own style of playing, and that is that is the 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 disease, that is the coronavirus of of an academy. <laughs> of, of academy. I of agree with academy. you, and and now that now that you spoke, we have spoken about the philosophy of the club and the culture, right? Now, my final question to you is this: What role does coaching education and the need to mould coaches under the club's philosophy? That's, that's vital. That's vital because I've seen academies, like I was saying, that they have the culture and paper. So they got the theory all right. This is how we do. This is how we work. This is how we coach. But the issue is they don't get the, uh, the coaches to replicate it. So you need the coaches to know what the culture is and to make it part of their own philosophy in, it, in order to replicate it in, into the whole academy. Mm-hmm. Um, so coaching education is vital here. The CPD programs, the uh, continuous professional development of how often do you normally academies make it every two months? How often do you get uh, coaches 
trained by your own club specific to the philosophy of the club uh, to know, to understand what the philosophy is and why is it in place. So why do we play in the same manner? Because if you don't do this CPD or continuous professional development, Mm -hmm. then each coach is going to interpret football in their own manner. And that becomes quite haphazard. And that is not logical for the players to, you know, for under 10s to jump into under 13s. And then he sees that one day he's playing full attacking football with a 4-3-3. Now he's playing with five at the back and he doesn't really understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. So there must be a coherent one. And the coaching education is so important, whether it's a, a club or an association, there must be a consistent coaching philosophy of how we train the players, of how we play and, and what are the values that we're trying to educate the players for. That's, 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 a, that's exactly what I, I wanted to hear from you because oftentimes we have club, even clubs that the under-15s are playing something different. The under-17s come. So when a player transition from the under-15, they go and they have to learn everything new at the under-17s. And then the senior team is a different thing altogether. A lot of the smaller uh, countries does the same with their national programs. You know, they, they, they hire a coach and he decides that he wants to play this formation. This is how his, his philosophy is. And then he, they go to under-17 coach and he has something totally different. And then they, ex- they, they wonder why these players don't transition into the senior team. And they're, they're confused, that's why. You know, there's no culture. So you have to develop a culture. And, and, and I think that developing a culture and a philosophy at the grassroots level is a, is a lot more important than even at the senior level because that's where they're starting. You have, to yeah, give them this, you have to give them this guideline that they need. And, okay, so I think we have explained, you have explained that rather well. Now, my final, can we finish, since we have gone through all the cultures, I think one of the areas that you and I spoke about before, and I think I'd want you to put it out there, uh, to compare the different cultures, the coaching cultures in Europe and South America, since oh, we're wait. on coaching. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, for the people to know, I've I've been around. I speak different languages, so I've been around. I've met people from different parts of the world, and mm-hmm. kind of getting to understand not just the football culture, but the culture in general. So I think that the culture of a country is going to determine a lot the, the the way in which they interpret football. So the the Brazilians are kind of all really happy, you know, tropical country uh, likes the samba, the capoeira, all of that, and you can see that in the football. They're the most creative, I'll say, nation in the world playing football. They they like dancing within the pitch, mm-hmm. and that translates into the coaching, into into how things are done. Um, so in Europe, you see. In England, so I'm going to give you an example in England. So a few weeks ago, I went to Colchester United. Colchester United is a Category Two academy. Mm-hmm. There are in League Two, uh, has a call first in, in the first team is in League Two, so that's uh, Division Four, mm-hmm. and it's a huge uh, club that focuses. Sorry, it's a small club that focuses hugely in the academy. Mm-hmm. So what they do is, um, I was I was watching one of the sessions, the under twenty three session, and and I was watching this session about receiving and passing. All right, so yeah, everything was delivered, everything was great. You know, he was giving a lot of emphasis to the coach and receiving with the back foot to play with the front foot as soon as possible. Uh, and 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 he kind of dictated right. So you always always going to receive you with a back foot always going to receive you a back foot. Mm-hmm. A few years earlier, I saw a very, very similar session in Madrid, at Atletico Madrid. A similar age group, it was, I think it was under-17s, 
But the coach, although he delivered something very similar, mm-hmm. the way in which he delivered the information in which he delivered it was completely different. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the English coach said, all right, you're receiving with your back foot to play quickly with your front foot. Um, the Spanish coach didn't say which way you're going to control the ball. He said, all right, so whether you control it with the outside of the foot is depends on you and depends on the situation. Mm. And that you can tell straight away that here in England, they're very kind of, this is, a, this is the right way of controlling mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. This is the right way. Yeah. So you see players very systematic in the way they do it. Yes. So they end up playing all in this very similar way. In Spain, because they have futsal as well, which is very good in developing technical ability, creativity, uh, playing in, in kind of small-sided uh, games with a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they control the ball differently. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, the coaching style is it, it's, it varies within the culture you are in. France is going to be different, and in Germany is going to be very systematic. On or oh, you always control it this way, you always pass it this way because this is the right position. Mm-hmm. In South America, it goes to a different ex- a level. South America, the coaching is not as detailed. All right, but that's because the culture itself, the, the children grow up playing in the in the streets. Streets, yeah. So they already have that development of kind of creativity and that great technical ability. Mm-hmm. So when they jump into the academy, the coach doesn't care at all whether you are controlling the ball with the outside of your foot or with your front foot or with your back foot or how are you facing? Are you facing forward or are you facing backwards? They don't really care, mm-hmm. but you have to get it right. So it gives the player the ownership to decide, all right, this is how I'm gonna I'm gonna flick it into the into the back of the fence. Or you know, I'm gonna receive it with my chest and then back heel it. And that creates a, a completely different culture of probably they're not as disciplined, they're not as strategic as the European, but they are they have this different flair, this creativity that you don't see from European players. So that's why Neymar is probably not gonna receive the ball uh, looking forward. He's gonna be receiving looking as his own goal, but he's gonna let it run in between his legs and, and then turn. he's gonna run yes. around the player. Yes. So there's different cultures in which coaches form the players, teaches the player of how to do certain things, uh, but there must be a balance, I think. There must be a balance, but why? Because then, you know, the English coaches, they tell them exactly what to do and then you end up having players that are really robotic. They do the same time all the time. Yes. But then you've got South American players that really struggle to go to Europe and play in a tactical game because they've always been too liberal, always too creative, and you know you need a bit of discipline. So that's when kind of the balance brings about. Okay. And those points are salient because we find that in the region, and I speak of the Caribbean region and maybe some other countries too, you constantly hear coaches shouting at players as they receive the ball to pass. You know, it's just like pass, pass, pass. And there's no decision making for the youngster or the young lady, right? There's no decision making because they're, they're, they're constantly shouting in their ears what they should do. So, and then when they get into a 1v1 situation, these coaches expect them to get themselves out. Which, and they have never been able to give the freedom to discover how to get by a player. You know? That's why that's why I think a coach shouldn't tell a player exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. Probably in a tactical sense where they're older, yeah. Right. 
But at the beginning, the foundation and youth development phase, I really think that you should give the player the ownership mm -hmm. to decide because every situation is different. All right, you want to develop a tiki-taka football and player like Barcelona, but the player needs to know when he's alone and has two players in front of him, he needs to know how to get past them, especially if this player has the ability. And you can see that a lot of players that have this tremendous ability of, of dribbling around, of running with the ball, of drifting into space, but they are kind of blocked, kind of their talent is blocked by this kind of stubborn coach that says, all right, pass the ball all the time. So how is he going to potentiate his ability, ability to dribble through that can make him a special player and make him actually a professional player if he's denied the option of practicing, of, of kind of like expressing that football? Exactly. And well, Benjamin, we, I mean, it's been a good talk. You know, we could have gone on for a little bit more. But, you know, as I said, good things come to an end. I really want to thank you for your insight into the development of academies and the structure, the culture, and developing a philosophy. I think that's good information to all and sundry. And I hope that we can elaborate some more at another time. I just want now to let my listeners know that Benjamin has told me that he will make himself available to anyone who wants him to come to their country and make presentations and academic development. I think that it's a good way to go about it. Uh, Benjamin has done a lot of research, has been exposed to a lot of academies, and has already written a document that he can forward. So anyone who wants to have a talk with Benjamin can contact me on my website, and uh, I will put you on to him. So Benjamin, once again, I appreciate you coming on. It has been informative, and I wish you all the best. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. All right, thanks much. Well, that was certainly an interesting conversation with Benjamin on the structure and performance pathway of academies, citing examples from academies around the world. Join me again next time, where my guest will be Parrish Taylor, who will be discussing mental and emotional training. Thanks for listening. If you found value in the show, please share with your friends. We'd love to hear your views. So if you haven't already done so, please like, subscribe, and leave a review. Make sure to visit our website at onthesideline.net, where you can access coaching sessions and more. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.